The old pilot's plain tales. The aluminium trail. James Douglas Jr. was to become the Secretary of the Air Force. Larry Clinton would be a well-known band leader. Richard Cole and Edgar McElroy both flew in the Doolittle Raid. Theodore Stevens' future was to include election to the U.S. Senate. George Olson became a comic book cartoonist who, for 40 years, drew The Phantom. Bruce Sundan would govern Rhode Island. Vernon Martin was a college and pro NFL footballer who was the starting quarterback for the University of Texas, becoming one of the immortal 13 Longhorns. Gene Autry would be a famous singer-songwriter and gain worldwide fame as the singing cowboy who owned Champion the Wonder Horse, Champion Roy Farrell and Sidney DeCansal would found Cathay Pacific Airways, and perhaps the best known to us, Ernest K. Gann would pen such wonderful aviation fiction as The High and the Mighty, and regarded by many as one of the best aviation books ever written, Fate is the Hunter. As odd a combination as folk as you would ever meet, but the remarkable thing was that they all served together in a little-known, certainly outside of the United States, and little-understood mission during the Second World War. This mission was flown in one of the world's most dangerous areas and in dire conditions. It would destroy hundreds of aircraft and kill many of their crews. Those that survived the awful terrain and weather still faced the threat of being shot down by Japanese fighters. To this day, the fate of over 300 aviators who disappeared is unknown. Most served in appalling conditions, often feeling abandoned and unappreciated, flying in a task that veterans would call the Lost Campaign. To understand the background, we need to delve a little into Chinese history. China had gone to war with Japan in 1937, but by the time the United States entered the Pacific War, Japan, by far the stronger force, had sealed off China from outside supply lines. Its ports had been conquered, and the last rail connection with the Soviet Union, a distant and pitiful lifeline, had been closed in 1941 by a Soviet-Japanese neutrality treaty. The infamous Burma Road lasted a while longer, but when the Japanese captured the port of Rangoon, the Burma Road was left with nothing to carry. The armies of Imperial Japan occupied a swathe of Asia, and their march seemed inexorable. Japan's expansion might have been much more aggressive if not for the valiant and bloody resistance of the Chinese Generalissimo Chiang Kai-shek and his fighters offered up in the parts of China that the Japanese did not fully control. In one estimate, Chiang's soldiers tied up well over a million imperial troops, but the Chinese were poorly equipped with weapons, ammunition and supplies. The Allies, and America in particular, were keen for China to keep the Japanese forces occupied, 
Should those troops be freed from their duties in China and transferred to the Pacific Theatre, future invasion plans might well be placed in jeopardy. On the 25th of February 1942, President Roosevelt wrote to General George C. Marshall, stating that it is of the utmost urgency that the pathway to China be kept open. And he committed 10 C-53 Sky Trooper transports for Lend-Lease delivery to the Chinese National Aviation Corporation to build its capability. Creating an airlift to assist China presented the Army Air Force with a considerable challenge. In 1942, it had no units trained, nor was it equipped for moving cargo, and no airfields existed in the Chinese, Burmese and Indian theatres for basing the large numbers of transport that would be required. Flying over the Himalayas was also extremely dangerous, and made even more so by the lack of reliable charts, an absence of radio navigation aids, and a dearth of weather information. The task was initially taken on by the 10th Air Force, and then by the Air Transport Command, and referred to as the India-China Ferry. Beginning in 1942, it was to continue for three and a half years, but would, certainly at the start, be beset with difficulties. The new Air Transport Command was initially a semi-military organisation, with most of its leadership coming from the ranks of airline executives who merely swapped their dark blue civilian uniforms for army khaki. The ATC also drew heavily on the airlines for manpower, using civil airline pilots, radio operators and other aircrew personnel from airlines to crew the transports that had been hurriedly purchased from civilian sources. The India-China Ferry also struggled with poor organisation, an ill-defined command structure and a low priority when compared with other theatres of operation. Ten former Pan Am DC-3s were requisitioned from American Airways, but they sat idle for the lack of crews to fly them to India. Commanders in both India and Burma made claims for jurisdiction over the mission, and a strange shared responsibility for the effort was meted out. Finally, a single airlift commander was appointed, and the first mission, over what was to be called the Hump, was flown in April 1942. A pair of DC-3s departed from Dinjan in the district of Assam in India with a load of 8,000 gallons of aviation fuel. The fuel was intended to resupply the Doolittle Raiders, whom it was hoped would be landing safely in China following their daring raid on Tokyo from the aircraft carrier USS Hornet. However, while still some 650 miles from Tokyo, the task force was spotted by a Japanese patrol craft and although it was sunk, a radio warning had gone out. Ten hours early and a couple of hundred miles short of their proposed launch point, the B-25 Bromers started and took off. They struck a successful blow against the imagined invincibility of the Japanese homeland before setting course for China. However, the fuel that the airlift carried for them wasn't going to be used. 
With the extra miles to fly and other unforeseen challenges, the Doolittle Raiders failed to make their destination airfields. They did, however, make it over the Chinese coastline, or in one case the Soviet Union, where they either bailed out or made crash landings. The journey that those who flew the hump to supply the Chinese forces was also full of risk. The official history of the Army Air Force describes it thus. The Brahmaputra Valley floor lies 90 feet above sea level. From this level, the mountain wall surrounding the valley rises quickly to 10,000 feet and higher. Flying eastwards out of the valley, the pilot first topped the Patkia Range and then passed over the upper Chindwin River Valley, bounded by a 14,000-foot ridge. He then crossed a series of 14 to 16,000-foot ridge lines separated by the valleys of the West Irrawaddy, East Irrawaddy, Salween and Mekong rivers. The main hump, which gave its name to the whole awesome mountainous mass and to the air routes which crossed it, was the Sansung Range, up to 15,000 feet high, between the Salween and the Mekong rivers. East of the Mekong, the terrain became decidedly less rugged and the elevations more moderate as one approached the Kungming airfield itself, 6,200 feet above sea level. The Assam-Kunming route was situated in the middle of three Eurasian air masses that were stirred and conflated by the presence of the Himalayas themselves. Moist warm air from the Indian Ocean to the south produced high pressure that swept north whilst cold dry air from Siberia moved south. These lows and highs were extreme, producing violent winds, and when those winds hit the immovable mass that was the world's tallest mountain range, they shot upwards at startling speeds until they cooled and then rushed downward in terrifying downdrafts that hurled aircraft earthwards at stupefying rates of descent. Turbulence inside the cloud mass was severe, pilots reported being flipped upside down by gusts, whilst many others were unable to report anything because they went missing. Hail, sleet and torrential rains lashed the aircraft. Thunderstorms built suddenly into whirling opaque worlds that not only meant a lack of visibility but also severe icing while the peaks of the hump were waiting. Westerly jet streams sometimes reached 150 miles an hour, and 115 miles an hour was not at all unusual. A trip in a C-47 from China back to India could see ground speeds of only 30 miles an hour, according to some hump stories, and pilots cruising at 16,000 feet might find their aircraft carried uncontrollably 10,000 feet in either direction. The weather was at its worst from February to April, with fierce thunderstorms and heavy icing. May to September was the monsoon season, with even worse thunderstorms. October and November meant good weather, which brought out the Japanese fighters, and December and January brought heavy winds, turbulence and more icing. Despite the presence of Japanese fighters, particularly on the more southern routes, 
the hunt was officially declared a non-combat operation, with lower pay scales and less time at home. Communications were poor, aeronautical maps were unreliable, and weather reporting almost non-existent. P-40 fighters, which sometimes escorted cargo planes, came with no radio at all, so the crew members installed ad hoc transmitters built for Piper Cubs. Homing beacons were positioned at every refuelling airport, but the weather often blocked them out. Pilots would sometimes use a commercial radio station just over the border in China as a guide. Maintenance was always an issue, with insufficient spares and a shortage of mechanics. Heat and humidity, bad accommodation and poor food made living conditions difficult, and with the danger and hardships, morale was always a problem. Malaria, dysentery were prevalent diseases, and water could only be consumed after purification by iodine. After the C-47s came the Curtis C-46 Commando, a whale of an aircraft that carried 70% more cargo than the C-47 and boasted two of the finest and most powerful piston engines ever produced, the 2,000-horsepower Pratt & Whitney R-2800 Radial. The aircraft were famously uncomfortable, with passengers having to sit on the floor in a plane with no heater. The C-46 could easily outclimb the mountains, but it was deeply flawed. Its biggest fault were tiny leaks that occurred in wing fuel tanks and lines. Such leaks weren't unusual amongst complex multi-engine aircraft, but in the commando, they were fatal. Curtis had failed to vent the juncture between the wing and fuselage, so the petrol pooled there instead of quickly evaporating. Random sparks from the fuel pumps caused some 20% of all hump C-46 to explode in flight. Eventually, the C-46 were replaced by the Douglas C-54, a variant of the DC-4 airliner, which became the standard long-range aircraft. They could carry 10 times the cargo of the C-47 and could fly 4,000 miles. Having a ceiling of 22,000 feet was marvellous, but they were still unpressurised. Those in command of the hump operation were frequently changed. I can only assume that it was an unpopular assignment. One commander would arrive unannounced at the various air transport command bases in India and China with his hair on fire, sacking and reassigning officers whenever he found laxity and incompetence. He became both feared and respected by many of his pilots and hated by the malingerers. He asked more from his aircraft maintainers and crews than anyone had imagined was possible and he was responsible for demanding and getting record tonnages delivered to China, first 10,000 tonnes a month and then almost 24,000 tonnes. He was also responsible for a period of terrible hump accidents. He admitted that setting new delivery records was more important than bothersome safety procedures, During just one seven-month stretch during his tenure, there were 135 major accidents and 168 of his crew were lost. 
half of them night flying crashes, since he had initiated after dark flying over the hump, saying, Airplanes don't need a sleep. At one point, every thousand tons flown into China cost three American lives. He lasted just 13 months. Still, during 1944, the hump flights grew exponentially in terms of tonnage, organisation and operational sophistication. It became, quite simply, the world's biggest international airline. 750 aircraft and more than 4,400 pilots. Between August 1944 and October 1945, the Hump delivered almost 500,000 tonnes of material from India to China. However, Chiang Kai-shek got less than 2,000 tonnes of it. Only three pounds for every 100 that crossed the Hump. The 20th Air Force got gasoline and ordnance. Chang all too often got wine, decorative shrubbery for his house, ping-pong tables, office supplies and condoms and such. The final report stated that the airlift expended 594 aircraft, so many that they left a trail of aluminium over the mountains. At least 468 American and 41 CNAC aircraft were lost from various causes, with 1,314 aircrewmen and passengers killed. In addition, 81 aircraft were never accounted for, with their 345 personnel listed as missing. Another 1,200 were rescued or walked out of the mountains on their own. The flight time in the airlift totaled over one and a half million hours, and at the time, the India-China ferry was the largest and most extensive strategic airbridge in aviation history, a testament to those who took part. Their final commander, General Tunner, who went on to command the American contribution to the Berlin airlift, stated, Never in the history of transportation had any community been supplied such a large proportion of its needs by air, even in the heart of civilization over friendly terrain. After the hump, those of us who had developed an expertise in air transportation knew that we could fly anything, anywhere, anytime. Plane Tales is a featured segment of the Airline Pilot Guy Show Aviation Podcast. Find us at airlinepilotguy.com.